0: Verse thirty-five. We should finish chapter seven and get into chapter eight today. Um, not because we couldn't talk for the entire time on these last few verses, but I wonder how much it would. Um, uh, we could talk all day and still not get a lot more truth. So, um, so let's just go ahead. I'm going to read. Well, we got the mic there, Maddie. Do you want to read for me, or? Marcus, you guys got the mic, either one of you, 35 to 38? You got to pull, that's fine, that's fine. While he's doing that, I'll just say that the previous statement he's going to refer to is basically that it is okay possibly even in some situations better, uh, to not marry. Uh, and, and that would be based upon some things like, do you have the gift of celibacy? Um, are the trials going on around you so difficult that it's going to make marriage even hard to even function? Those kind of things. He says it's, it's okay, because the idea is that that marriage was necessary for fulfillment in your Christian life. And he's saying, no, it's not that. It's very important, you know, and, but it's n- not absolutely necessary. So then he's going to go 35 to 38. Go ahead and read that for us. Okay, so this is Paul talking out of both sides of his mouth. I mean, it's like, okay, what now? And what? And how? You know? And to top it off, it's also um, there's a lot of questions in terms of the translation of the text that are, uh, and I'll try to bring those out to you in a minute. um, That that we have to question as well. So understanding this passage is not easy. and I write in my notes, it's a tough passage, any way you slice it. There's no way to make it simple. Plus, we don't know exactly the situation that's going on, so we're trying to reconstruct that. And that's, all this means it's hard. Now, what, first off, though, Paul wants to not lay restrictions on them. Um, he doesn't want to make a human law. Uh, he doesn't want to say, this is what you got to do. In, in, a, in this situation, um, in verse 36, it says, "...if anyone thinks that he is not behaving properly toward his betrothed, um, if his passions are strong, and it has to be, let him do as he wishes." Who would you say the anyone is in that, past, in that verse? Who is the anyone? Does he even understand the question I'm asking? The, the Christian man engaged. Right? Um, Obviously, the translators, this is a viable translation to do it this way. Um, But the Greek is not as clear that it's the engaged man. It actually could be the father... To the engaged. Does anybody have a translation that even moves that way? Go ahead and read yours, Deb. Hold on, here comes the. Yeah, I'm gonna let you read this. Go ahead and I want. <laughs> Right in the NIV, but then in the footnote.
1: In my footnote, it says, "If anyone thinks he is not treating his daughter properly, and if she is getting along in years and he feels she ought to marry, he should do as he should do as he wants. He is not sinning."
0: Okay, so did you see that? So whether or not, and I'm not going to go into all the details of how the different Greek can be taken. It really can be taken both ways, and depending on the context. So if if you let's just try to flesh out the differences and how you would understand the passage from one to the other, okay. So um, uh, if it says, how would you then take acting improperly or not behaving properly, if it's the Christian man? how would you take not behaving properly? Well, no, that would be the father. If it's the father, right, yeah, I'm asking, if, if if anyone is the Christian man, then not behaving properly would be what? I would take it, in my context, sleeping together before marriage, right? I mean, you, you and it says then... Um, uh, having, having his desire under control right so um, if, if it's this guy then he's he's not able to control himself and he's he can't keep his desires under control so he should just get married okay so that's and that's um it is a little bit strange to then take uh Well, doesn't even in the one translation it doesn't even say uh, getting along in years. Do you got, does anyone have that in your text? Ta- yeah, past one's prime. Okay, it's a little bit it's a little bit strange to, in this translation in this understanding to see it as like, oh, you're getting along. I thought it was like burdens of passion and self control, and you can't control yourself. Oh, but you're getting a little a little too old. So, you can see how the, the translation it has problems. And then it has settled the matter in his own mind. That seems kind of hard to, to apply to just the Christian man as well. Because he's just full of passion. He wants to get married, he's behaving improperly. You know, and so, so, is this a tr- possible translation? Yes, it is. But the other, tra- let's think of it the other way. So acting improperly, if it's the father, if you are enacting improperly towards your daughter, how could you be doing that? Not letting her marry. You know, Paul says that marriage is still good. Some people are, should not marry, maybe, you know, but, but it's a good thing. So you can see in the context of saying, um, hey, some people shouldn't marry, You could see how a father would then say, I'm going to keep my daughter from getting married. Especially if you maybe five years before had even arranged the marriage. In that culture, you did that. See, we're applying our own current culture into the situation where we think it's just two people fall in love and they want to get married. But in that culture, you could actually arrange the marriage. And you might have done it when the children were relatively young because you're trying to establish an appropriate marriage for them. So they get up to the marriageable age, and then you start hearing Paul talk on these things, and you think, maybe I shouldn't even let them get married at all. And you're holding back on letting them have their marriage. And it makes perfect sense then of getting along in years. You're actually holding them back, and they're going to in danger of becoming an old maid. That's my terminology. Yes, Bill.
2: The fathers on both sides of this thing have absolute control mm-hmm. on when the marriage is going to be f- fulfilled. The father of the groom has him preparing a room for his bride in Mm. the family compound and the father of the bride is also communicating with him as to when the girl will be taken into the other family. Uh, (coughs) That to me has more complications to what you were just talking about because you've got four people involved in this two who have really little to say when they can get married and two who are absolute authorities mm-hmm. good A- am i reading this wrong
0: i know i, no, I think i think that that's the complexity of this issue and paul has already said previously in chapter seven he's he's even spoken of if you've got these burning desires in your own heart then you should get married right i mean he's already dealt with um, the idea of the Christian man having the burning desire. So it would be kind of strange if he brings it back up again here because he's already dealt with that. So I, I tend to think that he is dealing more so with the parent situation than just with the engaged person. I'm not willing to be 100% on that. Obviously, people smarter than I have had translated it both ways, right? So I'll just, I'll, if you'll bear with me, this is a little bit long of a quote, but I, I read... This out of John Calvin in his commentary. And Calvin at that time is convinced this is the parents. He says he now directs his discourse to parents who had children under their authority, for having heard the praises of celibacy and having heard also the inconveniences of matrimony, they might be in doubt whether it were at all a kind thing to involve their children in so many miseries lest it should seem as if they were to blame for the troubles that may befall them. For the greater their attachment to their children, so much more anxiously do they exercise fear and caution on their account. Paul then, with the view of relieving them from this difficulty, teaching them that it is their duty to consult their advantage, exactly as one would do for himself when at his own disposal. He still keeps... Now, he still keeps up the distinction which he has made use of all along so as to commend celibacy, but at the same time to leave marriage as a matter of choice and not simply a matter of choice, but a needful remedy for incontinency which ought not to be denied to anyone. In the first part of the statement, he speaks as to the giving of the daughters in marriage, and he declares that those do not sin in giving away their daughters in marriage who are of opinion that an unmarried life is not suitable for them. Hath decreed in his heart, Paul seems to have added this to express the idea more fully, that fathers ought to look carefully on all sides before giving up anxiety and intention as to giving away their daughters in marriage. For they often decline marriage, either from shame or for ignorance of themselves, while in the meantime they are not less wanton or prone to be led astray. Parents must here consider well that it is for the interests of their daughters that by their prudence they may correct their ignorance or unreasonable desire. Da, da, da. He keeps going. And uh, and basically I I think I agree more with with Calvin on this and the concept that the, he's speaking to the fathers and he's he's not Paul's trying not to bind people. He's trying to walk a tightrope between, you know, marriage is good, marriage is not necessary. Marriage is very fulfilling. Marriage is not the perfect end all, you know. He's he's trying to walk this tightrope, and and I think he's trying to help fathers engage in this and not impose uh, these restrictions on their children that are betrothed. So, questions or comments on this? Again, I we could you could go. We could talk. Uh, Dive down deep and go through all different discussions, but you might have some questions on this that I might be able to answer Go ahead Mary
1: This different that can be translated differently, and it's hard It it just brings to my mind how How often does that happen? (laughs) other places
0: Well, it's nice um, uh, Debbie, at least in her NIV translation, and and I think mine does the same thing in the ESV. Um, well, it doesn't do nearly as much. It just says virgins. Um, it doesn't go through the whole expression like like Debbie's did. Uh, but most tra- translators, when they're very um, when they're very unsure on how to take something, and this is not a this is not a question of the manuscripts being different this is a question of just Paul's pronouns are not clear does that make sense the, the pronoun is just not clear and so um, translators have to make choices and in this particular uh, situation trans, many translators have made th- one side and some have made the other um, how often does this happen I would say not very not this much of a this is a Yeah. (laughs) Um, And so, I I mean, that's the best I can give you. It's not not very often. Um, This actually does seem to change the whole how you apply the text. Uh, And so, thankfully, this is not a section of scripture of which the gospel is based. (laughs) So um, but it is it is that it's a great question, though, uh, because it, it could undermine your confidence in the text that you have. So, yeah, he is. Yeah, and the whole thing is, remember, I was trying to explain this to Peter earlier. In the creation and in this world, marriage... is set up as the most meaningful, most enduring, most uh, purposeful relationship. Because this is you know, at the creation. One man, one woman. You don't be alone. Put you together in marriage. One flesh. This is the center of all things. And so if that was your 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 mindset, then then he, Paul would be saying things like, yeah, find your spouse. Cling to God to find the right spouse. You know, get... And, and uh, because this world is all there is, you want to have a marriage, right? And so what Paul's doing is he's saying, in the next world, there won't even be the giving. In marriage. Human marriage doesn't even exist. Not as we know it. What exists is the relationship of Christ to the church. Um, and so, I, again, I still think in all these things, Paul is trying to walk this tightrope between these two things, and how um, you are a part of this world. Marriage is a more enduring relationship than any other relationship in this world, but you really are part of the next world. And so it's not the most important thing, the end of all, that you must be married or you've just somehow missed out on all your purpose in life. So I think uh, even in this context, he, he, he's kind of all over the place. And I think if you've ever tried to counsel somebody, a young person, in terms of marriage, and sometimes you feel like you're all over the place. I don't even know what to say sometimes. Um, Is this the right time? Should you get married when you're young? Should you have kids when you're young? Should you have kids when you're older? Like, wait till you're more mature. I mean, like, you just don't know how to counsel all the time. And I think Paul is trying to, based on his big picture worldview, give the counsel that he thinks is best. And he's trying to Make sure that people don't fall off on one side or the other. Only caring about the next world as if this world doesn't matter, or only caring about this world as if the next world doesn't matter.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: So, if, uh, Correct me if I'm wrong, is he... Kind of clarifying that these are my, my judgments that the Holy
3: Spirit has enabled me to give. Yes. And they're kind of like the case law in the Pentateuch, applying the more basic laws given earlier. He's kind of doing the same thing, but he is inspired by the Holy Spirit.
0: But so he's just making clear he's not, these aren't direct commands from mm-hmm. Jesus or from Yahweh and in the Old Testament. And these are, based upon my principles, this is my wisdom to you, right? Um, Go ahead, Howard.
3: Like you said, these these verses, fortunately, I don't think should stand as a doctrinal bedrock for anybody. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But to me, this whole chapter is to be taken together, not just these these few verses that's good and throughout yeah. this we're seeing there are places where there are clear commands do's and don'ts mm-hmm. there are other places where paul says you know there's some options but there's certainly a blessing if you choose this mm-hmm. but then i find uh, chap, uh, verse 37 uh, but the man and this is niv but the man who has settled the matter in his own mind who's under no compulsion but has control over his own will, who has made up his mind, dot, dot, dot. He is legitimizing the Christian conscience.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: And, you know, when we read this, we're looking for formulas. Mm-hmm. We, we default to our legalistic mindset. And I think one good point here is to say Paul didn't. That's right. He that's said good. there is a very legitimate role for, you know, spirit-led, Mm-hmm. Christian conscience and making certain decisions.
0: Very well said, Howard. Thank you. Very well said. Ken? Was the audience here largely Greek in the uh, First Corinthians passage? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So is there also possibly he's addressing the issue that we had because you have those that are temporal, bad, spiritual, good kind of things, and so there may have been an element of that involved with Talking to the parents, especially mm-hmm. in that element, beca- and that they're again dealing with the issue of marriage, as um, as that el- something you know, in a way, the flesh was bad somehow. Mm-hmm. No, I think, I think that's um, that's basically the Greek thinking is that that spirit good, flesh bad. Uh, uh, yeah, um, and. I think I think one thing that's really, in terms of principle, and this will help us as we go into the next chapter. Paul is not simply giving a commentary on the law. He he is um, he's trying to reflect upon the institution of marriage in light of the resurrection. that's what he's trying to do and that makes it hard to do that so he's he's fleshing out new ground and in his he's not willing he doesn't want to do away with the institution of marriage but he also wants to put it in his proper place and so you're right Howard there are there are areas where he just leaves up to the conscience of the individual that's dealing with this and um and I think that's what we have to do as well uh I do, um, here's some statements that I'll make. Life in this world is imperfect. Our highest priority in this life is not to try to make it perfect. You cannot fix every wrong. Only the resurrection can do that. Um, you should try to uh, live according to the basic principles of of God's law, Um, but you also don't understand everything in terms of the sovereignty of God that is going on. I mean, it's a a pretty big thing to say there's a spiritual gift called celibacy, and only some people have it he can't even say who has it and who doesn't um and he's basically saying uh if you try to force yourself to be celibate when you don't really have that gift you're trying to live in the resurrection world when you're still back here in this life he doesn't want you to do that and the same thing as a parent as you're treating your kids if you just want to have perfection for them and everything's i want to keep them from having problems in this world so i'm going to hold them back from marriage don't know we, we can't really do that in our culture today but uh in their day, they could. And he's telling them, well, eh, rethink that a little bit. Uh, he doesn't remove it entirely. He doesn't tell the parent, don't do anything, you know, but he also doesn't say, just do, you have a command to do this one way. He leaves things according to people's conscience. Um, so, <clears throat> also, big picture principle of. Of Paul in marriage is the church should take people where they find them, then seek to move them forward rather than to seek to undo all the mistakes and sins of the past. I think that's very healthy too. (laughs) You can't get everything back to perfection. You're trying to help them move towards obedience to Christ, but you can't just fix every problem. Um, And Paul Paul says that's not even really the goal. If it was the goal, then he would have told every slave to get out of their, get away from their master. That he doesn't do that. He says you could, you could, if you can get your freedom, do it, but you don't have to. I mean, you can see how Paul is just saying, don't try to make the perfection of resurrection life live here. But you can seek obedience in the situation that God has called you in, and live by faith in that situation. And contentment. All right. I'm not even giving to any more chances. If you have more questions, you can ask later. Because, uh, I, I mean, I don't have all the answers to that. I, I, don't, I mean, I've read it many times. I do think uh, understanding 1 Corinthians 7 in the bit that I do understand it has helped me to be compassionate to the person who is uh, getting older and hasn't found a spouse. You know, to have, to, to have compassion in that situation, to have empathy for the, the struggles of that. Um, also, to have compassion for the person that's in a difficult marriage. You know, I mean, it, you can see all the different ways that you, uh, life in this world is very imperfect. So, okay. Let's go to Roman, or 1 Corinthians 8. So you can imagine understanding issues of conscience that Howard just made so clear for us, and, and it segues very well into chapter 8. So the question in chapter 8 is, how do you handle it when you disagree with another believer as to a particular behavior? What does it mean? To go against your conscience. These are questions that they're dealing with. How do you think this is a big one? How do you think God will react if He finds that you are destroying the work that He is doing in another member of His body? So let's just go ahead and read. Let's I think we should just read the whole chapter. Anybody up for that? Oh, Ed Lee? Oh, did I? I skipped those over, didn't I? I, didn't, I I was trying to get out of this chapter as messed as I could. <laughs> I'll read those and make a quick comment. A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes, only in the Lord. Yet in my judgment, she is happier if she remains as she is, and I think I too have the Spirit of God. So this is kind of a summary statement. Um, uh, the idea that Death itself breaks the bond of marriage. That's a big-picture principle, right? Because death, marriage doesn't exist here. It only exists here. So death itself breaks that bond, and we know that in our vows of marriage. But he's even thinking in terms of this world and the world of the resurrection, right? I mean, that's his thinking on this. Um, and, but he, st- he then says, even though, okay, you're in a marriage, your spouse dies. Maybe he could have said, okay, now you're free. Just think about the resurrection. He could have, could have said that. Don't, don't think about marriage anymore. You were in marriage. You had to stay in that marriage. Spouse dies. Good, you're free. Just be married to the Lord. And his point is, she's free to be married again. That's, that's because she still wants the, the fellowship and the companionship of marriage here and now. Nothing wrong with that. He gives the injunction that he gives other places that you should marry in the Lord, marry another believer. I think uh, while the institution of marriage does not carry over into the resurrection, I think that the relationship of intimacy and friendship does carry over. I very much expect to know and love and cherish Robin in eternity. I don't think that's completely dissolved. I just think that we won't be married in this exclusive marriage bond relationship eternally. We'll be uh, together, married to Christ. But I think that the friendship is going on. So Paul says, that, "Look, you should only want to marry in the Lord because that is a, an enduring, even after death, it continues on kind of relationship. Whereas if you're married to an unbeliever, that's it. You're done. You know, I mean, there's other reasons to marry in the Lord, but I think this is a part of what Paul's saying here. And then he says. Yet in my judgment, in my wisdom, because God has blessed me with celibacy, you can, if God has given you that gift, you can be even happier not being married. But if he hasn't given you that gift, he's already said that, because this is kind of summary, you shouldn't try to force yourself into that, right? And he says, I think that I too have the Spirit of God. So he's basically just saying that even though you might accuse me of not knowing what I'm talking about because I'm single and I'm sitting in prison, um, I do know what I'm talking about. I do have wisdom here. Is that helpful, Lee? The what? Oh, oh, oh yeah. It, it, it typically, um, well, I think Paul does provide for uh, uh, widows, to be taken care of by the church, so that's definitely you're being bound to the rest of the church is uh, is an obligation for the church to care for widows. Yeah. Uh, whereas in the Old Testament, they may have just said, uh, "Find another man, another man take take you under their wing." That's not the way Paul looks at it. So, okay, is that good. Thank you, Lee. I'll move on. Chapter eight. Um. <clears throat> Who wants to read chapter 8 for me? We got it. Nathan, all right. Go ahead.
1: Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Therefore... As to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things and through whom we we exist. However, not all possess this knowledge, but some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat, and no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, Will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Thus, sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, food makes my brother stumble. I will never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble.
0: Okay, so this is also a passage that is fraught with all kinds of misinterpretation. Uh, But it's, fortunately, there's not any major uh, textual translation issue stuff that's going on like there was in the past one. Um, Paul is dealing with idolatry. Idolatry is sin. You know, um, in, in the... Corinthians world, idolatry pervaded every aspect of their life. Uh, And we're talking formal idolatry. I would say that idolatry pervades every bit of American life as well, but it's not always formal idolatry. Okay. Um, their, Their social interaction, the feasts that they attend, the administration of justice in the courtroom, public plays, offices in honors of the government were all more or less connected to pagan idolatrous religious services. All of them. So we might go to the comma and we might think that, oh, that was immoral or that wasn't, you know, whatever the content of it was. But you don't go to the comma and upon entering the comma, have to perform some sort of religious rite that is idolatrous to get into the comma. See the difference there? It's, it's like there's a, everything around it was, it's almost like we did this um, with Christianity in our past. So over the courtroom was the Ten Commandments, right? So everything was used to pervade this kind of Christian understanding in our culture, and it's no longer like that. But in the Greek world, everything pervaded this this religion that was idolatrous everywhere. So this meant that if you were a Christian, you were constantly coming into contact with idolatry. Okay. Um, And here's an interesting concept. So they would sacrifice an animal. they would divide the animal into three parts. One part of the animal was consumed on the altar. Another part was given to the priest. A third remained with the offerer. This is also true of Old Testament Judaism as well. But even in the Greek world, this is a part of what's going on. Um, so often the priest would not need his portion. You can imagine he'd be you know, glutton with all these different sacrifices. The priest then would then send his portion to the market. Okay, So it's a piece of animal that has been offered to an idol, now it's in the market. And here you are as a Christian, you're coming around, you're getting food, and you're saying, uh, I don't know if this has been offered or not, but there it is. right?" And do I buy it? Do I partake of it? right? Um, so Paul could be dealing with, and this, it's important to understand these kind of levels, okay, no participation in idolatry. Paul doesn't want you to participate with idols. But there's going to be levels that are not really true participation with idolatry, but you have to decide, is it, are you comfortable with this or not? So the lowest level is that level where you just see meat at the market. You don't know if it's been offered to an idol or not. You just take it, go home, cook your meal, eat it. That's kind of the lowest. The second level, you might be invited by your non-Christian friend, over to their house for dinner. Okay? You don't know. Well, it's possible that they offered those to idols earlier in the day. It's possible that they were the worshiper that went in and offered the, the the food, and then they took a portion home with them. It's possible. And you can see how that might be just a slightly higher level of You're actually in the home of someone who earlier that day offered something to an idol, and now you're eating with them. A little bit different than the marketplace, okay? There's another thing. At these pagan temples, you had the temple, but along the outside, you had these tables, these different rooms, and sometimes you would have various uh, festivities, maybe a business meeting, you know, you're, you're pulling several people together, and you know that, like, this food has been offered here to an idol, and then right here, you're participating in a feast for business. You know, you're a Christian. You can see how that might be a little bit le- higher level. Of course, the highest level, which is clearly idolatry, is actually yourself participating in the worship of the idol yourself. That would be clearly wrong. But you have these other levels, and one Christian may say, hey, none. Another Christian might say, oh, this is where my threshold is. Another Christian might say, this is where my threshold is. And you can see how the Christians might be judging each other on this. Okay.
1: Yeah. Um, The company I work for owns a plant in Thailand. Mm. And for those of you that that understand other cultures, this is actually still a very, very um, prominent practice. There was a time when we were installing equipment and they were having a lot of electrical issues. And the employees of the plant began to believe that there were some spiritual forces at work they wanted to offer sacrifice to their gods to remove the, the spiritual forces. And so while one of the owners was there, they laid out this huge table with incense and drinks and food. Mm. And they let it sit out all day for a certain period of time. And then once, I don't know how much time had to pass, but once that time had passed, and they all ate the meal. And he was a part of that. He burned some of the incense and stuff like that. And I just remember sitting there thinking, gosh, what would I have done? Mm-hmm. You know, how would I have handled that? Because I'm
0: wondering why you're even a member of the, of the company you're with. You should be, no. I'm just
1: yeah, right, <laughs> right. And, you know, I mean, honestly, to have eaten the meal... I'm not sure that would have affected me to have burned incense as uh, if I'm actually offering uh-huh. some sort of sacrifice at that. But that's you know, I would have to draw the line in that regard. But
0: and I was being silly, but that's the kind of thing that a Christian would do. They'd look at Nathan and say, "What? you right. shouldn't even be a part of James tool. Get out of there. Right. You see what I'm saying? And then another person say, well, you shouldn't have gone over to Thailand. Like, where's the actual line in this? Right. And it's not easy to determine.
1: And so in some sense, you have to to follow your conscience and yet that's a that's a tricky thing too right I mean something you did yesterday may not be okay tomorrow as you gain understanding and and well
0: yeah that's the thing that we're going to talk about in this passage like it's 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 not just a cut and dry which is right which is wrong the conscience of the individual is also going to come into play and that's what's really tricky about this passage Thank you for sharing that, Nathan. That is, man, I wish I had that example to put in my notes. I might need to get you to quote that. And can, Yeah, <laughs> that is really helpful. So just so you know, in the book of Acts, there are some principles that Paul is drawing. So Acts 15, you can turn there if you'd like. Um, this is the Jerusalem council, and Paul is dealing with the whole Jew-Gentile issue because Jews, man, they didn't want anything to no part, you know, separate from the world, get away, and then. It, but these Gentile believers are like, well, I mean, this is my job. I'm here. I'm doing this, and so there's there's conflict there. But in the in the Jerusalem Council, they lay out some principles. I'm going to read 19 to 21. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble the those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but rather, but should write to them to abstain. From things polluted by idols, so like one of the one of the few commands that we give Gentiles is abstain from things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, which would also be connected with idolatry and, and temple worship a lot. What has been strangled and from blood. From the ancient generations, Moses has led had in every city those who proclaim him, and he has read every Sabbath in the synagogues. Then skip down to verse twenty eight. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. So in the book of Acts, it actually seems like it's pretty clear don't even eat anything that has been offered to idols. Um, and, But when we get to Paul... In 1 Corinthians 8, um, he says he believes there's still wiggle room. And it seems to me that he's taking don't partake of food offered to idols actually to participate in the idol sacrifices themselves. Is how Paul takes this. Because he looks at the other levels, and I'm going to argue that I think he looks at all three of these other levels as uh a matters of conscience
3: that uh, Jews had a different understanding of proximity. Mm. And uh in other words, if they got around anything dirty, they were affected. Mm. You know, they were mm. unclean. Mm-hmm. And this is entirely the opposite of what Jesus taught. Mm -hmm. With the leper, with the unclean, you know, woman of unclean uh, mission or whatever. Uh, It's not that you are affected by them, but you have the power of Christ in you to affect them. Mm -hmm. And that is a very powerful understanding to both in chapter 7 when we were talking about the ma- marriage between a believer and an unbeliever. Mm-hmm. Uh, but here, they don't have to be um, fearful, constantly fearful mm-hmm. of been, being made unclean because they have Christ in them.
0: Right, and that, I think that's the key. So in the Old Testament, the presence of God dwelt in the temple. But you, this is a fundamental, you as the church are the temple as a whole as a group but also individually you are uh, a embodiment of the the spirit of Christ inside of you so so there's a whole different principle that that you're making others more holy it's not just a god changes mind there's really is this principle that the holy spirit is in you <laughs> so yes thank you again howard excellent so um now um Paul says, uh, concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge and this knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. So how are we to understand these statements? Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. And I just want to get you guys' thoughts on this. That's good. We naturally think we know best, but defer to others. Okay? Okay. Good. Other thoughts? Okay. Excellent. Excellent. Any other thoughts? So, in general, knowledge... Truth is good. Okay? Truth is good. Uh, I would even say truth leads to freedom. But partial truth can lead to destruction. And in this situation the partial truth is the is the knowledge that idols have no true substance That is a true statement there is no true substance in an idol. We do not live in a world, so Nathan, back to your situation. They are, they are, this over in Thailand, they are offering to a being that doesn't exist. Now, you can say that this has been motivated by demons, and Paul will, will talk about that, but the ultimate truth is, and it's a partial truth, it's not the whole truth, the partial truth is that there is no God except for God, that he's the only God that exists. And you might think, hey, I got the truth. There's only one God. But it's not the whole truth. And this is, I'm going to try to, I'm going to try to give you a, a, a statement that covers this chapter, and then I'll try to walk through and explain it. The whole truth is that if somebody's conscience is fearful. Maybe one of those people in Thailand has just come out of idolatry. And for him to go into that meeting and actually sit there and eat, everything in his whole person would reek. am I just going back into this idolatry? And his conscience is being destroyed as he sits there and eats in that place. Then you... Based on your partial truth that idols are nothing, you have actually destroyed the faith of this man. And Paul says, don't do that. Think about that. This is, this is like one of the most profound things. Like, Paul understands idols are nothing. But if this is destroying the faith of that young Christian, and it's not even just telling the truth. So, Nathan, you could say, hey, man, it's no big deal. Idols are nothing. You've told him intellectually that that's true, but guess where it doesn't feel right in his heart? You know this. I remember as a young Christian, uh, I knew how much the the band The Eagles was um, really kind of satanic and terrible, right? They just saying terrible stuff. When I became an early Christian, I wanted nothing to do. It was like to even listen to them felt like a, a corruption of my heart. Well... It is possible to be led astray by music. Obviously, a lot of people have. But it's also possible to listen to an eagle song and it's just music. right? But to me, early on, it was more than just music. <laughs> it was that which pulled me away from Christ. And I didn't want to do that. I wanted to get away from that. I wanted to listen to just Christian music. You know? And so, so you can see how in my heart, I, someone could have explained to me, it's just a song. Just, just chords. You know, they, what did Luther say? Some of, the, some of the songs, the tunes that he took from are old bar songs. It's possible. Uh, but it didn't mean that for me at the time.
3: <laughs> yeah.
0: And, and what's, what I find interesting is Paul doesn't just say, hit those people that don't understand this over the head with your partial truth. He doesn't tell them to do that. Yes, yes. He's going to argue that you can kind of explain to them the truth that idols are nothing. But until their conscience is clear, you should not try to get them to actually partake. Because destroying their conscience is, is going against God's truth. And what is God's truth? Love. And what does love do? well yeah, but in the, it covers a multitude of sins but in this situation what does love do it builds up it doesn't destroy somebody's faith it builds them up I think this is very important on multiple areas alcohol would be one you know if somebody is you know coming out of abuse of alcohol you know I, I think it's true the bible uh, explains it very clearly that you know, partaking of alcohol is not a sin. Jesus turned water to wine. I mean, it's that, it's that blatant. But it's also, you better be careful that you're not actually taking someone whose conscience is very tender and encouraging them to do something that is against their conscience, which would be tearing them down in the face. So, this is just amazing. You think about the law. You think, like, oh, just get the law right. Get it right. Tell people what to do. This is it. And Paul's like, whoa, 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 whoa. Don't use the law as a club. Don't lose the truth as a club. You be tender with people. You care about them. You try to build them up, not just preach the truth to them. Um, So that's Paul's understanding. Um, And I would argue, for those of us Presbyterians, and this is a challenge to myself as well, right? The fingers come back here. I care deeply about truth. And I believe that truth matters. But I have to be careful that I'm talking about all truth, including love. And I'm not trying to, uh, to take my understanding of truth in a way that lifts me above others and, and in a sense beats them down. You can do that. And it's not a good thing. Um. If your greater understanding of the truth does not lead to a greater love of the body of Christ, Paul is going to give you fair warning. You are skating on thin ice. Paul would say, if you do this, if you take your partial truth and beat down another Christian, you better beware because you have damaged another member of the body of Christ. And Jesus does not take that lightly. He's going to come at you. So then in verses 2 and 3, if anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. See that statement? How, how What I've just said about this partial truth and love, How the, it makes perfect sense of that. You think you know something and you're tearing other people down with that? You don't know squat. What he's basically saying but if you really love God, and you really love your neighbor, then the, then he says, God has known you. Because his, in his mind, to set is, if God comes and indwells you, then he's going to take his grasp of love and truth, and he's going to impart it to you. So it's being known by God that is everything, right? As God imparts himself to us. <clears throat> Commentator Hodge says, "This love is the highest form of knowledge. You think you know something, and it is not motivating you to self-sacrificial love. You don't know anything. <clears throat> yes, you can. You can ask away. We've
3: spoken about Christian to Christian."
0: Yep. We have the problem of not being able to look at a person. I can look at Connie, and I know that I've heard Connie's testimony. I believe she's a Christian. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But
3: I, meeting her on the street, I would not know that necessarily. Right.
0: Yep, yep, yep.
3: And at the same time, you've also got people that are uh, obviously non Christian. Yep. yep. So now, how does this play out in regard to those that are outside the church?
0: Well, number one, the first thing I would say it's one of the reasons why we need to have a visible external sign, meaning baptism, that is a concrete visible sign into. So if I would say the question is not necessarily, is Connie truly saved? That could be a long time discussion, you know, but is she a baptized member of the church? So that makes a clear distinction between those who are in and those who are out. So that's one thing I think is important because I don't think Paul wants us to, in every case, be saying, uh... Connie, you, your conscience is all the way down here. You, like the, those levels I gave you, you don't, you, you don't think you can even get close to somebody. Well, you're, you're so weak in the knowledge, I'm not sure you're a Christian. I don't think Paul wants us to do that. Paul wants the person who has this much knowledge, or is able to do this much, looking at the person down here and saying, you're a member of the body of Christ. So that's important. This doesn't apply to those who are outside of the church. Because those outside of the body of the church are under the wrath of God. And so you're not, I mean, that's where you you present the gospel. Now, I will say, I was in a counseling conversation a while back, and there were issues of, of, you know, is this wrong? Is this wrong? Is this wrong? Can I do this? Can I do that? And it went anywhere from things that I would consider clearly wrong, like homosexuality, all the way down to things that, yeah, may or may not be wrong, smoking a cigarette. So um, all those kind of issues and in between. And then I just stopped and I said, you know what? We can, we can spend a lifetime talking about all these individual details, and we might need to as time goes on. But the, really the only issue that matters is whether or not you believe that this Bible gives you Jesus Christ and whether or not you think you can determine who Jesus is, or you're willing to submit up underneath what the Bible says about Jesus and give your life to Him, that's the most important issue. And then we can start working out the other details as time goes on. But the number one issue is you need Christ. So I don't know, Paul or Clark, to people outside of the church, they're all under the wrath of God. I don't care how good they are, or what they're doing, and you've got to give them the gospel first and foremost, or they're they're lost. I don't know if that answers your question, but what what, what exactly you does that scratching where you're itching? No. Yep. Yeah. Oh, now I get it. I get it. I get it. Okay. You keep going. I mean, interrupt you, but I think I get it. Okay, so, um, well, I, I definitely think that the love that you have for other believers in here is really what Paul's talking about right now. There is certainly a love that you have towards the lost world out here, but that love is maybe doing acts of kindness to them, it, but it's primarily telling them th- their need of Christ. Um, so, it's not just um, submitting to their conscience or whatever. This is—he really is talking about the love that one believer has to another believer in the church. So, all right, that's all we can do. I know I've already taken us late. So, Father, thank you so much for the word. And please give us grace as we try to understand it correctly. Um, Lord, and please help us to not be Pharisees um, who heap burdens on people and don't lift a finger to help them. Um, Lord, make us lovers, make us builders up of the body of Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.